0: Welcome to tonight's event. I'm Jared Ludlow, the Publications Director at the BYU Religious Study Center, Brigham Young University, and I'm the host for tonight's Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation. One of the goals of the Witzel Foundation is to inspire members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to engage in meaningful interfaith dialogue and community outreach in order to strengthen our local communities around the world. For our conversation this evening, we're going to talk about Jonah from a Jewish perspective. We invite you to join the conversation by asking us your questions at any time using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Inside the Q&A window, you'll be able to vote for the questions you'd like answered. We'll start answering your questions at around the 40 minute mark of our conversation. You can also make comments and engage with other audience members using the chat feature also at the bottom of your screen. Finally, you can find video replays of all our events, along with links to podcast recordings of this Interfaith Conversation series at www.widsofoundation.org. And again, Widsto is W-I-D-T-S-O-E, Foundation, one word. Our guest tonight is Professor Marvin Sweeney. Marvin Sweeney is a professor of Hebrew Bible at the Claremont School of Theology, where he has been since 1994. He teaches courses in Hebrew Bible and the history of Judaism and Jewish thought. He's also served as professor at various other institutions, including the Academy for Jewish Religion in California, a visiting scholar in Taiwan, in Korea, Uh, University of Miami, he started his career and various other institutions, including over in uh, Jerusalem at the uh, Hebrew University and the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research. He holds a PhD and MA in Religion from the Claremont Graduate School and the AB in Political Science and Religious Studies with distinction from the University of Illinois. He's also studied at the Princeton Theological Seminary and again the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Brandeis University. He's the author of many books, including a lot of commentaries uh, on various Hebrew Bible books. And particularly one that will be relevant for today is one on the 12 prophets. And he's currently writing a commentary on 1st and 2nd Samuel and on jeremiah beyond that he's written well over 100 articles and 600 reviews so very prolific and very uh distinguished scholar in the field and we're very pleased and happy that you could join us uh, this evening
1: so thank you to... my pleasure to be here
0: thank you uh so kind of to start us uh, in this discussion of jonah before we get to the book of jonah exactly why don't we Talk a little bit about these 12 prophets or the 12 Mm -hmm. books. uh, That's a literary collection where this is found. And then maybe a little bit about the historical context where this uh, story takes place.
1: Okay. Um, Well, Jonah is part of uh, what's called in Judaism the Book of the Twelve. And in Christianity, the Minor Prophets. um, So they're read somewhat differently. In Judaism, they're recognized as a single book that has 12 12 sections in it, each um, about a different prophet. In Christianity, they're understood as 12 separate uh, prophetic uh, books that have been assembled into a collection. So it's sort of six, one, half dozen, the other, because each tradition recognizes both the parts, the components, and the whole. And they're well known in antiquity. We've got, uh, of course, the various versions. the Hebrew Masoretic text, which is what I typically use and which is sacred scripture in Judaism and is one of the witnesses to the Bible in Christianity. Um, we also have um, the, uh, the Greek translation, the Septuagint in any number of manuscripts. We've got Aramaic, Syriac, uh, Coptic, uh, Ethiopic, um, Latin, uh, you name it. Um, we also have um, the 12 Prophets and the Dead Sea Scrolls and it's very striking when you think about the uh, orders of the, uh, the Book of the Twelve, they vary in the manuscript tradition. Um, the Masoretic Hebrew text is organized in such a way that um, the various um, components of the Book of the Twelve will represent um, uh, concern with Jerusalem throughout. So you start with Hosea, go to Joel, which focuses on Jerusalem. Amos and then uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, uh, Habakkuk, uh, excuse me, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Whereas in the Greek tradition, um, they start with uh, Hosea, Amos, and Micah, which some scholars have thought must represent an historical order. But when you find out that Joel uh, would be located in a period earlier than any of the first three I mentioned it's not an historical order, rather it's uh, an order that looks at the experience of the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the implications of that experience because Northern Israel was destroyed and exiled and what that might portend for Jerusalem and Judah at a later time. Then you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, There are a number of uh, Book of the 12 manuscripts there, uh, one of which is in Greek, um, a very, uh, very literal, and wooden translation of the Proto-Masoretic text, but one of the um, uh, Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts—it's fragmentary. 4Q12, uh, what is it? Uh, B, if I remember correctly. Uh, 4Q12B. Um, one of the fragments starts with Malachi, and Jonah follows Malachi, and it's not um, no 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 other tradition that we know of places Jonah after Malachi. Uh, in Hebrew or Greek. And that's suggested to some scholars, maybe because Jonah is a prose uh, book rather than an oracular book. Um, maybe it was the last of uh, the 12 prophets to enter the collection. But if you read Haggai or Zachariah, um, you're looking at, uh, at narrative anyway. So there's a variety of orders to these books that have been known um, among the various traditions in which um, they're read and um, in, the, um, the, uh, in the various orders that are given for the Book of the Twelve. And if you look at the Greek manuscripts, there's a whole set of different orders. Um, the scribes had a good time with the Book of the Twelve and um, trying to reproduce it um, according to whatever language traditions they, uh, they were using. Uh, so there's a, quite a, a wide manuscript tradition available for the Book of the Twelve, and Jonah in particular.
0: So you wouldn't necessarily just find a scroll of Jonah lying around. You'd find these Book of Twelves. You might find fragments of it separate, Mm -hmm. but...
1: You you can find individual examples of of the individual Twelve Prophets, so that's not much of a problem, Um, particularly since um, uh, in various traditions the books are read at different times. And in the case of Christianity, the books are read as separate books in and of themselves. So it's not impossible to find uh, Jonah or any of the others of the 12 on a manuscript that um, only has that book, or maybe a sub-collection. And in fact, uh, commentaries, um, even modern commentaries that are written on the 12, oftentimes they're simply on jonah or or amos or zachariah or nahum or whatever you like or sometimes subsets in my case uh i wrote a com i was asked to write uh and wrote a commentary on the entirety of the book of the 12 and when i wrote um that commentary it was published in the year 2000 it had been about nearly 70 years since the last major commentary um had been written on the book of the 12 or the the uh, decline of prophetin because it was a German commentary, Um, then you saw collected studies. But since that time, most of the commentaries have been on individual books. And it's only recently that scholarship has begun to return to asking the question, what does the book of the 12 or the minor prophets look like as a whole? And I've been privileged to be part of that conversation. Um, have made some contributions to it, among with other scholars in the field. So it's actually sort of a live uh, a live issue right now in biblical scholarship. Um, how do we read the Book of the Twelve as a book in and of itself? And how do we read the individual um, prophets that are contained within it, depending on what order we're looking at?
0: Mm. So that would be more of a canonical uh, approach and looking at them yes. as, a, as a whole and so forth. And just to yes. clarify, um, when we talk about minor prophets, we're mm. not talking about importance necessarily, right? We're talking that's about right. length, correct?
1: Right. That's that's correct. Because uh, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, are much longer uh, than any of the individual books of the 12. Um, in fact, um, Isaiah at 66 chapters has the most chapters. Jeremiah at 52 chapters actually has the most words. Um, And in modern scholarship, one of the questions that's come up in the book of the 12 is why is that uh, collection brought together into a single book or a single collection? And number one, and number two, it appears to um, have been um, presented in such a way that it responds to issues that one sees in the book of Isaiah. Um, So there's a, a sense that Isaiah has Um, its own sense of divine revelation and how it goes about thinking about issues raised in the book, Um, the Book of the Twelve can oftentimes uh, challenge it. Uh, For example, the very famous oracle about um, uh, all the nations coming to Zion in Isaiah chapter 2 that uh, will bring about an age of peace in which uh, nations turn their swords into plowshares, spears, Into pruning hooks, and uh, nations don't learn war against each other anymore. That oracle appears several times in the book of the 12, and it's read somewhat differently. In Isaiah um, chapter two, uh, this oracle begins the chapter, but then you get um, a lengthy oracle concerning the day of the Lord, and it's a day of punishment against all who are arrogant, proud, lifted up, whatever. Um, And that includes both. Israel, Judah, and the nations. Whereas, when you see it in the book of Micah, the same oracle, slightly different wording, but it's in a very different context. You don't see you don't see this oracle in Micah four and five as part of a longer unit that looks at both the punishment of Israel, Judah, and the nations together, as Isaiah does. Um, you get language that suggests they're considered separately, and that. The sequence in Micah is that some of the nations, Babylon in particular, are going to attack Israel and Judah. And the way to bring about peace is to defend oneself and raise up a Davidic Messiah who will eventually defeat the nations that oppress Israel and Judah. And you see similar usage of that oracle in Joel, um, which speaks about an attack against Jerusalem and quotes the oracle turn your um, plowshares into spears uh, your, uh, or what, whatever. And Zachariah, which also cites it in a context in which uh, it's looking at nations that oppress Jerusalem. And in, at the end of the book calls for a Davidic Messiah to rise up and overthrow the nations that oppress Jerusalem. So there's there's a debate going on in the prophetic books about how do we understand some of these oracles respond to them, and it's very interesting because if you um, look at other books of the Bible, say the Christian New Testament, um, you, get, um, you get four different gospels that speak, uh, that provide a different perspective on Jesus, and so what uh, the New Testament wants to do is have you look at Jesus from four different standpoints. You see that kind of technique also taking place in the Hebrew Bible where this Swords into Plowshares passage is actually viewed from several different perspectives and gives we readers a chance to consider it um, in relation to the different perspectives that were shown. And it gives us a much wider view of uh, how we might go about interpreting scripture and applying it in our own times and our own lives.
0: Good, thank you. Thank you for sharing that uh, broader picture of these Mm -hmm of Jonah within these other uh, 11 books. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about historical context. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do scholars tend to place this book and its relationship to what's going on in in the history of uh, Israel around it?
1: Mm -hmm. Most scholars uh, uh, today tend to see Jonah as a very late book. Um, Its language uh, uses a lot of Aramaic or Aramaic derivative, which shows that um, it was written, or at least in its present form, uh, composed or written, perhaps sometime in the Persian period or the Hellenistic period, but it's talking about a prophet from the uh, 8th century BCE. And when we look elsewhere in the Bible outside of Jonah, which gives us no clue other than the Assyrian period uh, in which to place uh, the prophet, Um, We have 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, which appears in the account of the reign of King Jeroboam, the son of Yoash um, of northern Israel, who ruled, um, um, according to the American counting system, from about 786 BCE to 746 BCE. And we're told that during Jeroboam's 40 year reign, he ruled over a large kingdom in peace, everything was going well, and that his kingdom extended from Labo Hamat in the north, which is up by the Euphrates River, all the way down to the Arava, um, which would be the area of the the Red Sea, um, which is a kingdom that would be comparable to the kingdoms ruled by David and Solomon some 400 years prior to Jeroboam II's time. I say Jeroboam II because he was the second king of northern Israel named Jeroboam. The first one was the uh, so-called founding monarch, Jeroboam son of Nevat, um, who was the king who um, ruled over northern Israel after it split from the house of David according to 1 Kings uh, 12, 13, and 14. But um, what uh, the Bible uh, tells us about Jonah, he's identified as Jonah ben Amittai, um, a name. Uh, the name Jonah, Yonah, in Hebrew means dove, so it's sort of a peaceful uh, image, if you will, um, for uh, a personal name. And that his father's name Amittai means my truth. So there's an element of, um, of veracity, uh, truthfulness to uh, to Jonah, and we're told that he was the one who announced that Jeroboam, son of uh, son of Joash, uh, would rule over this great kingdom, uh, and that it would be a kingdom of peace. Of course, it doesn't tell us why it's a kingdom of peace. Um, uh, it's just presented that way. But uh, Jeroboam uh, ben Joash, son of Joash. Jo- Was the fourth member of the house of Yehu. Um, You might pronounce that Jehu, depending on how you read the English uh, translations. His great grandfather was the founder of the dynasty Um, after the fall of the house of Omri, whose chief king was Ahab, who doesn't have a very good reputation in the Bible. But uh, Yehu revolted against the house of Omri. Um, He was engaged, he was a, a general in the Israelite army fighting in the uh, transjordan against uh, aram or syria which was trying to take control mm-hmm. of israel at that time and the war was not going well ahab king ahab had been killed uh, his son uh, his son yoram had been wounded uh, the army was being defeated and yehu being a general ended up leading a revolt against the house of omri Uh, overthrew the dynasty, took control, but things did not go well because he was focused on internal politics. The Arameans proceeded to attack, push their attack, and basically drove all the way through the Jezreel Valley down to Philistia and subjugated northern Israel. It didn't go well, (laughs) and it took several generations. His grandson, Yoash, was the one who actually made the moves to restore Israelite independence. And after that was done, Yoash's son, Jeroboam, ruled over a kingdom of peace. Of course, what the Bible doesn't tell you is during that time, how did they find the strength to throw off Aram? They found it by aligning with the Assyrian empire. Bible doesn't tell us that, but we've got the um, inscriptions and other monuments of the Assyrians that show us King Yehu, the only pictorial representation of an Israelite king we have anywhere bowing at the feet of Shalmaneser III. He found an ally on the other side of Aram who promised, if you need help, we'll attack the Arameans and get them off your back, which is what the Assyrians would do. And we also know that his grandson, Yoash, who I mentioned before, he's mentioned in a tributary list of an, the uh, next Assyrian monarch, Adad-Nirari III. Basically, that peace was brought through an alliance with the Assyrian Empire. And because of that alliance, Jeroboam had a peaceful reign because the Aramaeans didn't dare attack because they knew if they did, the Assyrians would jump yeah. down their throats immediately.
0: Yeah and yet as as we'll see the Assyrians will be a major uh yes born in the side of the northern Israelites and a major part of this story right
1: that's uh, correct
0: so just to clarify here the the Jonah mentioned in second kings you said 1425 I believe
1: yes yes um,
0: do biblical scholars think this is the prophet that's this story is built around or yes is this just a, a name that maybe it was used to to connect this a, li-
1: a little a little of both okay. because we've got a story about what appears uh, appears to be an historical prophet and i'm well aware that in uh, the church of the latter-day saints saints historical issues are very important but we can't verify the various actions that are that are reported or discussed in the book of jonah um, for example, being swallowed by a great fish. And what is that great fish? Um, and let me just say that um, in recent experience, I read a newspaper article, well, newspaper, I read it on the internet, mm-hmm. um, Yahoo News, uh, a few, a couple of months ago about a, a fisherman. I think he was um, on a boat off of Massachusetts somewhere, but uh, somehow his boat was sinking and um, he was apparently um, swallowed, at least in part. By a whale, and uh, he <laughs> realized where he was. Uh, started kicking, and the whale spit him out. So it's not impossible <laughs> to be at least partially swallowed by a by a whale, and uh, and to survive. Um, but interpreters have looked at this and said, "Well, you know, what what does it mean to be swallowed by a by by a fish?" Um, in Hebrew, it's dag gadol, a great fish. If you read it in Greek, um, they use the uh, the term ketos um, megalos, um, uh, a large sea monster, which has been understood to be a whale or something along those lines. So the, the translations play a role, actually, in how we think about what this fish might be. And it's also striking that, uh, you know, when we think of God, of course, God can do anything. So if God wants Jonah to be swallowed by a great fish or sea monster, whatever this thing is, um, and that he can stand and pray to God from inside of that fish, then God can do that if God wants to do it. So that's, that's not something that I would care to dispute. But at the same time, the issue of historicity, I think, is a secondary issue. The first issue is, what do we learn from this narrative and what should we expect to learn from this narrative? And that's key because in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, stories, whether they're based historically or not, are major teaching tools. And even in our modern society, we can read stories, novels that may be historically based. If any of you know Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, which deals with the, uh, the firebombing of Dresden during World War II. That's a novel based on an historical event. Or you might look at uh, some of the novels of Chaim Potok, War and Remembrance, again, novels that are based on historical events. And we learn from them. So that with Jonah, we have no means to prove empirically whether this actually happened or not. But the question is, what are we supposed to learn from a narrative like this that's attributed to a prophet who's identified historically in the book of Kings? And it's striking, he lives at a time when Israel is at peace, so is Judah. Um, King Uzziah ruled Judah at about the same time for about the same time period, and both of the kingdoms were in peace. But... As a prophet, one of the things we have to understand about Jonah is that he might well know what Assyria is going to do. Because when we read this narrative, we read about a prophet who's commanded by God, go to Nineveh, um, speak that uh, they need to repent before God, and he doesn't want to do it. And so oftentimes in the commentaries, there's a lot of attacks. That are made against Jonah he's petulant he's selfish he's you know all of all of these things come out in the commentators but one of the things that we have to think about is what does a reader take away from this narrative and especially a reader who knows the bible and knows that Assyria is going to destroy northern Israel during the reign of king hoshea the last king of northern israel and that we've got the whole tradition of the 10 lost tribes some of them have come back to modern israel there was one um, that was identified uh, a group of people from nepal the area around nepal that was able to prove that it had the dna of northern israelites who had been exiled some 2,500 years before and were accepted as descendants of Israelites who were allowed to return to Israel and reestablish themselves there. I mean, that, that happens. And we've got the Ethiopian Jewish community that I was privileged to play a role in, in in bring getting up support to bring them back to Israel because they were considered descendants of the tribe of Don, Dan, uh, if you would pronounce it in English. But for for Jonah, seeing him living at this time and knowing if he's a prophet, presumably he knows what's going to happen. And if he's a reader, like all of us are, we know what's going to happen too. What is it that Jonah is upset about? And the answer to that question is that if I speak to this people and they repent, and they do in the book, then... What happens to my people? What does that mean? Because it means a Holocaust or Shoah for Northern Israel in antiquity. We've experienced this in modern times, and I know the LDS has been persecuted as well. Um, you know, to what extent does this become a factor? And yet, what the book wants to wants to teach us, number one, is that repentance is available to everyone. Now, there's there are no exceptions to that. And they deliberately present a story in which Jonah is commanded to go and call upon Assyria to repent. And they do, and what do you do then? Well, you accept the repentance. Now, Jonah doesn't wanna do that. And so the narrative takes us through the scenario and it's very striking because when you see the gentiles in this they're the righteous ones jonah jonah is not mm-hmm. and that's that's an important part uh of the book that um when you see him on the ship uh he's told he ends up trying to run away goes down to yafo which is the port city of uh, ancient israel and uh it's still around uh if you ever go to israel go to yafo it's beautiful it's, the name means beautiful so and it is but he uh books uh books passage on a ship of tarshish which we think was somewhere around the iberian peninsula spain um although tarshish may be derived from uh, uh, a word tarsos which means oars which is an ocean-going ship tries to escape and of course god watches this you're not getting away so quick um brings a storm and the sail and while jonah is down in the hold of the ship sleeping soundly the sailors are, you know, basically desperately trying to save the ship and their lives. And they ask Jonah, you know, pray to your God. Well, he's you know, he's resistant to this, and they figure out, wait a minute, maybe Jonah is the cause of the problem. And so they eventually do throw him overboard, and as soon as they do, the waters become calm. You know? And and end of story for, for the sailors but they're the ones who are praying to their gods. They're willing to pray to the God of Israel. They're doing anything they can to save their lives and they try. But in the end, Jonah doesn't cooperate. So we have Jonah brought back on shore and um, the second part of the end, well, not yet, but um, he ends up in the water. That's when he gets swallowed by the fish. And so as he's in the belly of the fish, it's, uh, it's very interesting what you see here. Um, he's going down to the depths of the sea in the belly of this fish, which many interpreters have seen as sort of a death march for him. He's descending down to Sheol, the world of the dead. Um, and we see examples of this. For example, Isaiah 14, when the Babylonian king descends to Sheol, all the dead kings of the nations are down there waiting for him. And so we see what ancient Israel thought, uh, Sha'ol meant. So you see Jonah going to the depths of the ocean and going down, Um, when he's down there, he begins to realize where am I and what am I going to do? And he prays to God for forgiveness. And so you look at this and what you see is some, is a model of repentance, at least on Jonah's part. And so, The fish spits him out onto dry land, and we move into chapters three and four, in which God comes back to Jonah and uh, commands him again, go to Assyria and um, call on these people to repent, and this time he goes, um, calls on the people to repent, but, well, he doesn't really want to do it. I mean, he makes that clear, and then once the call for repentance is out, the Assyrians do it. And there's an, an element of humor in this because they show all of their animals are also repenting. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's uh, you know, stories work when you can get a good laugh out of them, even when you're ta- discussing serious subjects. But you see this, and Jonah is still very skeptical. And you see uh, him sitting under a broom tree, which may be any number of shade plants, and saying he wants to die. And God comes to him and asks him, you want to die because these people have repented to you. Um, why is it you care so much um, uh, that that you're so worried that you want to die because these people are going to live? Um, you want to die because the broom tree you're sitting under has died under the heat of the sun. What's, what's, what's the matter with you? Why should not these people be saved, uh, their lives be saved? Which is how the book ends. Um, And that becomes the important point of the book. What does repentance mean? Now, when we think of Assyria, we think of the country that destroys Northern Israel, but that happens after the reign of Jeroboam ben Yoash and presumably at some point after the lifetime of Jonah ben Amittai. And so the Assyrian empire has not made the decision To destroy Israel they might be condemned for that later book of Isaiah makes that clear but at this point they haven't done anything wrong number one and number two they've asked for repentance and how is God supposed to respond and of course God responds by granting the repentance okay your lives will be saved now because of that message the book of Jonah is read on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Repentance. We just had it a a few weeks ago, October 5th and 6th. And during that day, we fast, we pray in synagogue, um, and the prayers, the prayer service focuses on repentance um, because God is going to make the decision what is going to happen to each of us in the coming year. And people are basically there to repent and save their lives because they could die in the coming year or they might not it depends on what God decides for us and we don't we, we don't know that but Jonah is read in the afternoon service and that's a key time to read it because it comes in the late afternoon been fasting ever since sundown the night before and that's the time that the dehydration headaches start um, that you begin to feel, really feel the fast, and um, and it reminds us that we are mortal, that we are going to die at some point, and that in Jewish tradition, that we will be judged by God, and so it's a reminder of what the day is about. We are here to repent before God, bow down before God, ask God's forgiveness and we're obligated if we've wronged people we're obligated to go to them and ask their forgiveness as well it's not just that you go to the synagogue and pray for forgiveness and you get it you have to actually repent in Jewish tradition and so the last one of the last things that happens is that in the afternoon service uh the Torah is read um and Jonah is read and it reminds us that repentance is open to all. And it's our responsibility to repent and to live our lives in a way that would not call for us to be judged as being wrong or sinful or what have you. And that we have the example of the Assyrians in the book of Jonah to show us how this might happen. And so it's a reminder of what this day is about. And so at that point, you read the book of Jonah, you see this narrative. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you know as a, as a narrative, we can't prove or disprove it either way, but that's, that's not the point. The point is the message that's being articulated in this book and that we then take as Yom Kippur starts to come to an end and we go out to live our lives for the coming year asking ourselves, well, what did I learn during this period of Yom Kippur of fasting, self-denial, and repentance, and how will I change my life for the better in the year that I'm starting now? So right. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for that uh, explanation because mm-hmm. um, you know, I as you mentioned in passing uh, Jonah does have these comedic mm-hmm. or humorous elements yes. to the yes. story mm-hmm. and you know I, I had heard that it was read on Yom Kippur the most solemn day really of the mm-hmm. Jewish calendar yes religious calendar and it always left me wondering why and uh, you know he becomes I guess this or this this s- story raises these important issues uh, that mm-hmm. relate to the seeking forgiveness uh you know repenting that's going on Mm -hmm. uh, on yom kippur Mm -hmm. um just a reminder to to those listening if you have any questions Mm -hmm. and would like to pose them in the q a uh section uh on the zoom window uh feel free to do so Um, but just to kind of follow up here a little bit Mm -hmm. so part of the message would you say with jonah is that it's more of a universalistic uh, viewpoint of God's children versus mm-hmm. particular, versus you know just the house
1: of Israel kind of thing. What, what it's it actually it's about? actually both, both okay. um, because um, it it plays upon a theme from uh, from the Torah, the Pentateuch, um, Exodus thirty four verses six and following, where Moses is um, uh, is in a cave on Mount Sinai. After the golden calf incident, which is of course a major a major problem in the Pentateuchal narrative, in which uh, sin has taken place, and God judges those who worship the golden calf, and Moses asks to meet with God sort of face to face, but God won't do that. But God puts him in a cave um, and walks past so that Moses never sees God's face. Although other portions of the of the Torah speak about moses and god speaking face to face but exodus 34 does not and what happens is that as god passes um you hear this uh this chant uh the lord the lord um uh merciful and gracious long of patience etc which speaks about god's mercy and then the second part also speaks but bringing punishment on those who have earned it Um, so that it's looking at both the sides of mercy and judgment, or mercy and justice on the part of God. In the 12 Prophets, Jonah um, will end up playing on the merciful theme of God, and actually quotes some elements of this passage uh, in its narrative, whereas the book of Nahum, which judges Assyria, um, plays upon the theme of justice, and um, argues that Assyria is going to be punished for what it's done so the two actually are played out together and in terms of universal versus particular um both the nations and Israel and Judah are able to repent before God each one of them is that's the point of the book that it's open to everybody okay and It's not a case where Jews hate Gentiles because sometimes that's the charge that's been made. It's the case of whether justice is actually being done in the world on the one hand and the other is what is our responsibility to think about justice? In a narrative, Assyria is able to repent and they haven't done anything yet. They have not destroyed Israel and that becomes part of the point. What happens if you've got if you know historically that Assyria is eventually going to commit this crime? But what do you do before the crime ever happens? You don't hold people accountable for things that they have not done. You know, and that becomes a a a message here too, because part of the Yom Kippur afternoon service is also to look at the reality of suffering. Earlier parts of the service take us through several prayers in which Jews were murdered during the Crusades, uh, the Rhineland um, uh, Crusades 1096 to 1098. Somewhere around a million Jews were killed by the Crusader armies on their way to the Holy Land to liberate it and uh, bring it uh, from uh, Muslim control and bring it under Christian control. And they decided to um, to uh, attack Jewish communities along the Rhine River. And we of course have the Holocaust. Um, we Jews know what it means to suffer. And LDS also knows what it means to suffer. Um, you were in Nauvoo, Illinois much earlier in your history and ended up leaving because of persecution. I mean, LDS knows what that's about too, but yet you can't take a stance of um, of judgment against a people that has not acted, that has not committed a sin, and that's one of the things that also has to be remembered, um, and especially when you're thinking about the um, the descendants of people as well, you know, to what extent do they become culpable for what their ancestors have done? And so that question of mercy and justice in the world is a very serious question to think about. How do we respond to the suffering? And we don't forget it on the one hand, but at the other, on the other hand, we don't judge those who are not culpable. And that comes into play as well. And number three, it's God who renders judgment. We have some of our responsibilities for setting up courts of justice, but ultimately it's God who renders judgment. And that is a further point that has to be remembered in reading a narrative like this and reading it especially on Yom Kippur.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Um, we've got a question from the audience that kind of is related to this. It's from Nick. Mm-hmm. He says, I've always thought Jonah's reluctance to go. To Assyria, to Nineveh, was due to Assyria being an immediate threat, or their brutality. Now, I understand the timing better. Mm-hmm. But why do you see him being so hesitant? Is it nationalism? Uh, is mm-hmm. there something
1: else? I think it's because he's a prophet, and therefore knows what's going to happen at some point in the future. Um, of course, we can't bring Jonah here and interview him and ask him, "Did you know about this?" But, but when you see the Book of Jonah. Um, placed in the hebrew bible and you read it in relation to the book of kings where he's mentioned um, it's uh he's in chapter 14 in chapter 17 three chapters later assyria is the nation that destroys the northern kingdom of israel and as a prophet he's presumed at least from at least from the standpoint of a reader of the text that he knows this is going to happen now what we're not told uh, are the details of the revolt of northern Israel. As I mentioned before, we know from Assyrian records that Israel was a vassal, subject to the Assyrian Empire. We know what Assyrian treaties look like. They say, if um, if I need if uh, I need help from you, the Assyrian king says, I need help from you, send your army, you do it. Uh, when I come to collect your tribute, which pays for us to protect you, it's a protection racket. Um, you pay it. But if you revolt, then we will attack you. That's what happened. And it's striking that this this treaty is not well known. It is not discussed much in the Bible, but there's some vestiges of that discussion in the 12 prophets. The book of Hosea, for example, knows about this treaty, although interpreters have seen the book of Hosea as a book that judges those that don't return to God. But what does returning to God mean? Hosea mentions a covenant with Assyria to carry oil down to Egypt, because the Assyrians were trying to establish trade relations with Egypt and had to go through Israel to do it. That's why they were interested in Israel to try to dominate the economy. And so Hosea says, we sh- basically is arguing, we should return to our God and condemns the dynasty of Yehu in the first three chapters um, that uh, that speak about Hosea's relationship with a woman of harlotry and the three children. The first son is named Jezreel, which is where Yehu's revolt took place. And basically, northern Israel is being judged because when it signs a treaty with it with Assyria it's acknowledging their gods that's part of what's going on in the book of Assyria and what Hosea wants its readers to do is drop the relationship with Assyria and establish a new relationship with Iran because that's where our ancestors came from and cites the Pentateuch in chapter 12 saying we established our borders with, um, uh, with, uh, with Aram uh, through the, um, the ancestor Levan. We uh, had a prophet lead us away from Egypt uh, to freedom in the land of Israel. Um, why are we allied with Assyria that wants us to align with Egypt as well? And basically says Aram is where our ancestors came from. That should be our allies. And that then becomes the basis of Hosea's message in chapter 14, uh, he makes a statement, you know, we cannot rely on the Assyrians. But that has been lost because interpreters oftentimes don't read Assyrian records to find out what's going in the outside world. Mm. And that tells us that some of the issues of politics in the ancient world are very live issues. It's not simply a religious issue. It's also a political issue, and that applies even when you have when you're aligned with nations that may turn out to be your enemy later on. Um, the United States, uh, we've had debates: Do we ally with uh, with Great Britain during World War II? That was an issue before the war was fought. Why? We fought a Revolutionary War and another war against the Brits to attain our freedom. Why would we then ally with the Britons? Why? Because it was in our best interest to do so. Why would we fight against the Germans during World War II? Because even in the early colonial days, about half of our population came from Germany. In fact, um, the US Congress had to vote at one point. There was um, the early uh, congressional period. There was uh, a bill on the floor to um, uh, decide the question of what language should the new United States speak? And the questions was was it English or was it German? Because we had so many German immigrants. And what broke the tie was somebody suggested, well, why don't we uh, why don't we um, uh, use Hebrew as our language? Because it was taught at Harvard College at the time, and it was a biblical language. Um, and that actually shifted one vote, at least one vote, from German to English, and English became the language of the United States. But we've had different relationships with nations. England was once our enemy. Now it's our friend. Germany um, was once our enemy. Now it's our friend. Um, Japan was once our enemy. Now it's our friend. Um, And we see these kinds of issues coming up in the world of politics. Religion isn't something that that is just located in one synagogue or church. It deals with the entire way in which you live your life and think about your interrelationships with others, whether we're talking about individuals or with nations. And that's one of the things that the book of Jonah teaches us also. Um, It's not a question of universalism versus particularism, although I don't like the term particularism. It's an issue of how do we respect both ourselves and the people with which we interrelate. You do them both, and you don't have this reservoir of revenge before an act has happened, you know, we happen to be privileged, or Jonah maybe was privileged to know about this beforehand, but still, if you're going to take the notion of justice seriously, you don't punish someone for a crime they have not committed. They may do it later, and then they, then they should be punished if they've committed a crime later, but if they have not committed a crime, you do not you do not take them to court for that. Okay
0: um maybe this next question again from the audience uh might just be a short answer but from Anne leah is there any reason for the date on which yom kippur is celebrated Since yeah. we'll talk to a little bit about that, yeah.
1: Book of leviticus says the 10th uh, the 10th day of the seventh month which comes um 10 days after the day that's celebrated in new as new year um so you follow the dates that are laid out in leviticus um, which means you got to read Leviticus, um, because many, many people are resistant to do that. But Leviticus is a book of holiness. It discusses the, uh, the holy days of the year, uh, the way in which you oft make offerings to God in the temple, um, and the way in which you think about ethics and morals. Leviticus 19 goes through a, quite a bit of that. Um, it's a book of how to conduct yourself in a holy manner. And so God gave us the dates, um, and those are the dates that we observe.
0: And would it be maybe to start off the new year kind of on a cleaner slate? to Yes. To start yes. the toman? Um, in the United
1: States, we think of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as the holiest days of the year. But um, they are actually preparatory holidays for Sukkot, tabernacles which takes place uh, starting on the 15th day of Tishri and runs in the United States for a total of some nine days. Uh, we just concluded Sukkot about a week ago. Um, it's a whole system of, uh, of festivals. Um, it's sort of a, akin to uh, Christian uh, Christmas and New Year's, the Holy Week period, if you will. Um, whereas in Judaism, it comes in the fall Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, concluding with uh, Simchat Torah, which is when we conclude the annual reading of the Torah and start it up again for the coming year. It's, uh, it's an entire holiday season. Um, in the United States, though, people think, well, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. That's not actually true. The holiest day of the year in Judaism is Shabbat, <laughs> Saturday, Friday night till sundown Saturday. That's the day. We're supposed to. Um, that's the especially the day we um, uh, we are supposed to observe. Although in the United States, much a much more secular country than say ancient Israel or Judah was, um, it's oftentimes overlooked. But uh, Shabbat actually is the holiest day of the year uh, because that's the um, the uh, weekly anniversary of creation, and then Rosh Hashanah is the annual anniversary of creation. So it's it's a matter of seeing holiness throughout the year, not just for a couple of days per year. But uh, I think uh, LDS understands that, that principle as well. Oh, yeah. wow.
0: um, we've got a couple of similar questions. Uh, so I'll ask Roberts that kind of covers what another audience member also asked. And of course, this is coming from a Christian perspective, uh, you'll see in the question. Do the Jews see any significance in Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days?
1: Um, it's a three, uh, according to the Pentateuchal tradition, when Israel is in Egypt, um, Moses and Aaron bring the request to Pharaoh, um, let my people go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God. And so when you look at Jonah in the belly of the whale, what he's doing is praying as if he was in the temple, the three-day journey, because the three major holidays of the year, Sukkot, prefaced by Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Sukkot is one in the fall. In the spring, you've got Shavuot, which celebrates the revelation of Torah um, in May or June. And then... um, Uh, you have Passover I skipped over Passover in the spring you've got a seven to eight day holiday uh, that begins the uh, barley harvest those are the three holidays they're all what are called pilgrimage festivals in which one was expected to um, in the ancient world travel to Jerusalem or wherever the temple had happened to be because northern Israel had Bait, and Don, but they were pilgrimage festivals in which people would come to bring their offerings to God there. And so the three days you see in the belly of the fish um, is meant to represent that journey to the temple, which then depicts uh, Jonah praying. He can't offer a sacrifice, of course, in the belly of the fish. That's not going to be possible, but um, he can pray, which is part of the, of the worship service. And that being in the belly of the fish um, is a metaphorical way of having him then turn to God uh, as if he was in the temple and appearing before God. Of course, God's everywhere, even at the bottom of the sea. Um, and so that metaphor of appearing before God as if it is the temple uh, would then explain uh, the three days that uh, that are used in the narrative because it's a way of signaling to the reader. We're not just talking about a fish or the ocean here. We're talking about your presence in the temple at the appropriate times, that if you're going to repent before God, you need to go there and do it.
0: Interesting. Uh, Another question, given that Mm -hmm. suffering occurs to all in life, Mm -hmm. and it is God who renders judgment, do you mean in the next world? Not in this life, or...
1: Mm-hmm. and you've um, about judgments it's um judaism uh much of judaism now believes in an afterlife that was not the case in uh in the period of the hebrew bible um basically everybody went to sheol everybody died and sheol is presented as no fun whatsoever um if you read isaiah 14 um, they make the point that not only are the ancient kings the dead kings waiting for the babylonian kings but they're sitting on beds of maggots and all the rest of the of the the rotting and whatnot it's not presented as in any way a wonderful experience but then you get a couple of um uh reference or about three or so references to resurrection uh in the hebrew bible um the book of daniel is probably the most prominent one um, but you also have a reference in Isaiah 25 about the dead coming back to life, that God will bring them back to life. And then you've got Elijah um, and Elisha bringing um, uh, uh, boys or young men back to life after they had died in narratives in um, 1 Kings 17 and uh, 2 Kings chapter 8. So you've got some some references to resurrection. The New Testament, um, places major emphasis on resurrection um, because in Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, the idea of eternal life was something that was very important to Greek and even Babylonian culture. They all talk about eternal life. Um, It didn't influence Judaism until roughly the Hellenistic uh, period or maybe the Persian period. And ultimately, Judaism did adopt a notion of... Uh, of an afterlife, that if you live a worthwhile life of holiness, then at the end of time, God brings you back from the dead and you uh, live eternally in the heavenly temple where you can spend eternity then praising God. It's sort of like Shabbat for eternity. Um, but that's that's more of an historical issue because when you uh, look at the biblical period, um, there's really not much of a notion of an afterlife there's much more of a notion of we die, we all go to Sheol, um, but that started to change in Judaism, which was heavily influenced by Hellenistic culture, and to a certain degree by Babylonian culture as well.
0: Okay, Well, we're almost to the end of our hour, and so I thought we'd end with one last question, which yeah. has to do with the final verse of uh, Jonah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, I'll ask part of the question from the audience, but then also I have a question related to it because it seems to end as kind of a cliffhanger or Mm -hmm. maybe there's this humorous Mm -hmm. end to it. So I'll just read the verse. This comes from the Jewish Publication Society Mm -hmm. uh, version. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I'll ask the question. And should not I care about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not yet know their right hand from their left, and many beasts as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So the final verse refers to those who do not know their right hand from their Mm -hmm. left. This Mm -hmm. comes from Charles. Uh, One interpretation Mm -hmm. I've heard is that those who are children, excuse me, is that those are children who are not old enough to know to distinguish between right and wrong, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i.e. under the age of eight or accountability Mm in Mm latter-day saint terms uh what do jewish scholars think and then i'll add my part to it Mm -hmm. is why end you know in this kind of and the many beasts as well kind of Mm -hmm.
1: answer well the animals come in well wait a minute you know what about an animal why should that and there's an element of humor there that the animals are going to learn something but when you think a little more deeply about it um looking at this it depicts the assyrians as children which we all were Um, if you remember your childhood. And um, one of the things that happens is that uh, we grow up and we have to learn. And so while there may be an element of, uh, of humor in this, especially on Yom Kippur, there's also a very serious element that we're all children. We all have to learn. The Ninevites at that time would not presumably have known God, but the book of Jonah presumes that they will someday. And so they start out as children, and one of the first things you learn is your right hand, your left hand, um, as well as all the other things you have to learn when you're growing up as a kid to become an adult, a responsible adult, who knows what to do in the world. Um, So you see that, and you see the Ninevites here at the beginning of a journey, if you will, um, that um, may take... millennia, if not uh, centuries or millennia, uh, to work itself out. But uh, the book of Jonah presumes that people are eventually going to know God, um, because you see the Bible filled with references to the nations witnessing what God does to, for, or with Israel. And if you read um, the Exodus narrative, the Song of the Sea, um, the last, the, the later verses of the Song of the Sea, Um, depict Israel um, journeying uh, out from the sea to the wilderness, and the various nations are watching this happen. So there's, there's an element of thinking about, you know, what are the nations going to think about this that are also coupled, if you will, with assertions that God is the creator of all the world and all the nations, and God is the sovereign. Of all the world and all the nations and you see those tropes running through the prophetic literature isaiah makes quite a point of that uh, involving the nations as well as israel book of the 12 does as well but it doesn't like oppression on the part of the nations so it wants to correct that and likewise you've got uh the questions that uh, rise within jeremiah and ezekiel uh jeremiah you know how do you um, how do you think about the nations that are brought to punish you, um, and at what point, according to Jeremiah, did we deserve it? I mean, sometimes we have to think about you know, do we have responsibility in this world? Jeremiah asks us to think about such issues in relation to one of the greatest catastrophes of his time, the destruction of Jerusalem and exile of the people. And Ezekiel, who's already exiled and lived at the same time as Ezekiel, is asking, how do we go about bringing holiness back into the world, um, particularly when we've seen the destruction of the temple? How do we then go back and restore it when you see that great vision at the end of the uh, book of Ezekiel, uh, which envisions the, um, the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, and many of its features look very Babylonian. Um, such as the altar. And so, you know, what then does that mean for the future as Ezekiel would understand it, especially given the fact that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are priests. They may be different priestly orders, different priestly families, but they're both priests and asking about holiness. Jeremiah, observe Torah. Ezekiel, sanctify the holiness of the world, rebuild the temple. That becomes the center of creation in the thought of, of each of these, of each of these uh, figures. And so they're, they're both asking the question, how do we think about our place in the world and what do we do to bring about what the later Kabbalistic thinkers in Judaism called tikkun olam, repair of the world? You know, And what role do Jews play in that? And what role do the nations play in that as well? You know, we're not in this alone. We're actually all in this together, even though we may approach it from different religious standpoints. In rabbinic Judaism, the laws of Noah call upon Jews to recognize that there are other nations in the world that should be accepted as legitimate. That doesn't mean become a part of these nations. You still have your obligations to be a Jew, but religious traditions such as Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism have been accepted as true nations in the rabbinic understanding of the laws of Noah. I think Buddhism is well on its way if it's not already there yet. Um, And that becomes a way of recognizing that we live in a multi-religious world and see it from different perspectives, much like the model I used um, for the gospels very early uh, in this interview um, and learn to accept a world that um will uh, see god differently in fact the oracle about uh turning your swords into plowshares in micah um actually the verses four and five make a statement that the nations will observe their gods we observe ours but basically is expressing a notion of um of religious coexistence in the world and recognizing that we see things from different standpoints and then asking how do we live in this world given that difference in reality that we expect that this is a world that will become a peaceful world. And it's up to us to make it that.
0: Good, well, thank you very much. Um, We've now come to the end of our time together Thank you so much, Professor Sweeney, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you all uh, in the audience for joining us um, for Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, you can rewatch this event or listen to a podcast version of our conversation by visiting www.widsofoundation.org. For our next conversation on November 27th, we'll discuss Malachi with a special guest. So please come back for that. And thanks again to Professor Sweeney for sharing your insights with us and thanks to you dear
1: audience for joining us thank you very much it's been my pleasure thank you for the invitation